This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Our guest today is journalist Rebecca Traster. Rebecca is the author of many brilliant books, including Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger, which examines the history of how women's wrath has led to incredible political and social change. Today, we talk through the ways our culture, politics, books, and stories condemn female emotion, the theory that women's domestic authority can cause a subconscious resentment in men, and the double standards that our white patriarchy perpetuates, making it incredibly difficult to rise against and overturn. Rebecca was fascinating to speak to, and I think Good and Mad is poised to become one of the seminal books we return to for years. This is one of the strategic functions of discouraging the expression of anger in in women and in, in lots of people at the margins, because the communication of dissatisfaction is the building block for potential future organizing and activism, for making networks of people. Okay, let's get to my chat with Rebecca Traster. So Good and Mad, which I wanted to talk to you about primarily, although you've written so many incredible books and been, you know, sort of a role model of commenting on culture for me, and I'm sure for many others, is such a needed and necessary book that it's funny because it's about a time, but it also feels like it's it's about an emotion, right? Mm-hmm. And it's about this enduring expression or lack of expression over time. And it seems like it's just one of those seminal books that we'll come back to in 20 years. So congrats on that. Thank you. And- I hope th- I hope that's true. That's a lovely thing to say. No, I think it is true. And because I feel like so many times when, you know, obviously you wrote about Clinton and Trump and 
these things that are still capturing our imaginations. But even then, some so many times, so many times those things can feel immediately dated. And yet, and I know that you crashed that book out in what, what was it like four months? I wrote it in four months. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. That's hard. But interestingly, a lot of it is also rooted in history so that it's about the politics. By the time it was published, which was the week that Christine Blasey Ford was testifying in the fall Mm. of 2018, there was this weird thing about like, oh no, is this dated? Because it's about women and anger at the moment that that there was this thing happening that was so relevant to everything in it. But in fact, because the story that I wound up telling in that book might have been rooted in the first couple of years of the Trump presidency, but it also extended back to the founding of the United States, you know, to uh, t- truly to uh, Abigail Adams and Mumbet, who is an enslaved woman in the 18th century in the colonies. You know, it, it is both about a very specific time, you know, this administration, but it's, I tried to make it very much in line with a much longer story of the United States and, and the history of how women's anger has provoked so much political and social change over centuries. Yeah. It's interesting because the day, you know, when that testimony was going on, I was actually in London and I was interviewing Mary Beard and Mm -hmm. it felt like just wild actually to be with her in particular in this moment of time because she was talking about, you know, obviously she talks about the silencing of women and how it goes back to sort of the first the first spoken word story, right? When Telemachus tells his mom to shut up and go upstairs. And there are chords of that too. And because she, she talks about how historically and anciently really like women have only been allowed to express anger or rage when they are in defense of other people, never Mm -hmm. as a personal expression of their own discomfort or, or anger. It's also very specific what kinds of people are they speaking in defense of, where their rage is permitted. You know, a lot of what what Mary Beard has written about with regard to that has to do in part with their roles as mothers, right? If women, and, and I write a little bit about that in Good and Mad too, the idea that you can be mad in your capacity as a mother, mm-hmm. but that that is also the traditional valuation of a traditional kind of femininity. And if if a lot of the women that I write about in Good and Mad, which traces, you know, some of women's political anger, you know, on behalf of progressive disruptive politics, which means on behalf of those at the margins of vulnerable people and disrupting the power structure, that kind of anger, even if it's on behalf of other people, is not valued and is, you know, it is framed as unpleasant, ugly, dangerous, threatening, if if what that anger is going to do is disrupt who has what who has certain kinds of power totally and i think you know for me as a, a fellow white woman reading your book too i thought was such an excellent excavation really of 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 patriarchal women right and mm-hmm. the reasons why so many of us uphold these structures that we're dependent on which is very complicated, right? And it, it it creates so much fear and anxiety because it gets into the very questions of survival and security that we're all feeling so, so many of us are feeling acutely, particularly in this time of 
COVID, right? Like it's getting, it's, and I think when those women often aren't even conscious, right? They don't understand. It's not a considered choice. It's a reactive choice of fear. Right. Well, and of benefit, you know, this is one of the things that I think a lot of people and maybe a lot of, or some, you know, middle-class white women who've not prior to the past few years been engaged politically. One of the things that we, they have talked a lot more about in the past few years has been the sort of appraisal of the fact that we do live in a white capitalist patriarchy, mm-hmm. right? That's, that is the system on which the country was built. And I mean, it's courts, it's economy, it's businesses, it's laws, it's, it's political system. And there have been revisions to that, right? But it is still very much you know, a a white capitalist patriarchy, and then taking apart how power gets distributed within that means that white women have the advantages of white supremacy. And Mm -hmm. so, and, and part of how, and, and actually the person who has been great at, whenever I sort of break this down in this way, I always have to credit Brittany Cooper, who wrote a, a brilliant book on called Eloquent Rage, also about women's anger, about black feminist anger. And Brittany was the person who sort of gave me the language for how this works. But, you know, within how it's fundamentally minority rule, right? Yeah. A white patriarchy, actually, there's one tiny minority population that's theoretically at the top of that power structure. Well, in a purported democracy, how do you get the majority, like if the majority actually dis- disadvantaged by this power structure rose up against it, it could defeat it in a democracy in theory, right? So how do you get the majority to support the continuation of that power structure? Well, to some, you offer the benefits of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And that's offered to men across races, you know, even at the same time that they are often violently oppressed by white supremacy. And to women, uh, to white women, you offer white, the benefits and privileges of white supremacy. Yeah. And that's a real incentive. And, and that, you know, for a long time has worked and it works particularly hard on, on white women who are often in intimate familial relationships where not only white women benefit from their whiteness, but wind up in marriages and homes and families with white men who are at the top of the power structure and with the by the way, lie that patriarchy will protect them. Right. And one of the revelations, one of the reasons that, you know, if you if you look at the pattern of how white women have become angry and aware of these dynamics in a way that they haven't before over the past few years, or aware in a way that ha- they haven't been for several generations, you can look at some of the calamitous things that have happened that have made it clear that white women actually will not be protected within a white capitalist patriarchy if they challenge it. Mm -hmm. And that is the defeat of Hillary Clinton, upper middle class white woman, who by every measure should have defeated her incompetent, malevolent, unprepared, underqualified opponent for the presidency. And in fact, did defeat him popularly Mm -hmm. and yet lost the presidency. That was like, a lot of the dynamics, you know, of how a white woman with every conceivable advantage can yeah. still lose within this system. And then you have somebody like Christine Blasey Ford, an upper middle class white woman with advanced degrees who 
when she challenged, you know, the, the powerful was chewed up by a system, wasn't protected within that system. And a lot of that stuff has been put on view and it's too bad that it has to be that that's when, that that's the kind of thing that can wake up a population of, of people is when they understand how they themselves are vulnerable within the system that until then they had either been apathetic to or had actively supported. Right. And it's in the context of anger, Christine Blasey Ford is such an amazing example too, because you watched Kavanaugh sort of devolve into, you know, angry, bratty, frat boy. Mm-hmm. And yet she was stoic and 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 still ignored, which is remarkable. Well, it's also it, it is so typical of how who gets to use what kinds of communicative devices to their benefit. Yeah. And white men, you know, who are you know, the, the, the sort of get to have the full range of humanity, right? We're taught that white men are full humans. And we've been taught that through culture, through politics. They're our leaders and our villains and our, you know, like the, they, we've seen them from every angle. They've been in, you know, they populate our books, our stories, our songs, you know. And so we're familiar with all this, this whole range of humanity. So anger is among the things that a human being feels, yeah. And we can we can recognize it in white men. And because we have also attached a certain kind of power and and expectation for power and strength to white men who have historically predominantly been our leaders, our judges, our politicians in the United States, anger, it's like one of the things they can wield on their own behalf. And Brett Kavanaugh did it and Lindsey Graham did it. And in those men, their anger can be read as strength, commitment, patriotism, passion, all these things that we can naturally associate with leadership and power. And so not only did it not work against Kavanaugh or Graham, it worked for them to establish them as powerful in a way we could understand. Had Christine Blasey Ford raised her voice in anger, because we do not encourage women's anger, even white women's anger, if it is in challenge to the power structure. Yeah. Her, the, the mere raising of her voice where she had every human reason in the world to be furious, not just at Brett Kavanaugh, but at the circumstance she was in, at being asked to be there at public and having, you know, she hadn't wanted the public eye on her. There were a million reasons she might have been angry. But had she expressed herself with anger, we all know it would have redounded negatively to her. She would have been written off as irrational, unreliable, over-emotional, crazy, unpleasant, aggressive. And, and of course, by the way, I should note that her testimony came, what, 91, 27, 17, 17 years, <laughs> doing the math, <laughs> after Anita Hill's testimony. Yeah. and. You know, Anita Hill, who also spoke in her testimony about the sexual harassment she experienced while working alongside Clarence Thomas and like Christine Blasey Ford, had an advanced degree and, you know, which should make us all think about how about all the women who wouldn't have even been asked about their experiences because they didn't clear that high bar for 
having an advanced degree can, you know, think of all the women who, who might have stories of harassment or assault who would never have been asked to sit in front of those judiciary committees because we wouldn't have been predisposed to trust them because they didn't have all the qualifications that made their testimony in theory unimpeachable. Even these two women who had all the qualifications and still were not believed, right? They're the, the men that they accuse sit on the Supreme Court right now making our laws deep into the future. Right. But Anita Hill also spoke in incredibly calm, clear, measured tones. And the cost for her as a black woman would have been even higher. They were. The treatment of her was horrific. She was treated monstrously by the Senate Judiciary Committee in 1991. Yeah. No, I remember that as a child and being really struck by it. Not that I even understood the full sort of context for it, but that how, what an, what a grievous wrong had been done. And also just sort of the legacy of someone like, you know, what Clarence Thomas meant culturally mm-hmm. as well, sort of not, I think you talk about, I can't remember who it was, who was talking about sort of the pain of Clarence Thomas in the context of Thurgood Marshall, mm-hmm. but, you know, this, this, this man who sort of stood against the interests of so many people and how, how I'm sure that how traitorous that feels in the same way that I think so many women feel, you know, when we think about someone like Amy, Car- Amy, Con- Amy Coney Barrett, <laughs> sorry, it's just, it's like, wow, on the, on the backs of so many women, how could you be so traitorous? But that takes us back to what we were discussing before about the way that power is distributed and how you rise within a system that is going to reward you for supporting that system, right? Mm -hmm. So there will always be, I write about this in, in Good and Mad, there will always be rewards on offer for those who are among, you know, a population of people who are oppressed or discriminated against, who are willing or eager to defend, side with the oppressors. Totally. Because the oppressors are the ones with the power and they will offer some of that power yeah. to those who want to side with them. And that is, in fact, so much of the history of white women in this country and white women on the, the front lines of the school integration battles in the mid 20th century. You know, this is, this is a role that white women, white women within a first wave feminist movement, within a suffrage movement, you know, in which some of them made explicitly racist arguments for, for the enfranchisement of white women. Yeah. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. 
To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I, um, speaking of Brittany Cooper, if you don't mind if I sort of, if you, if I read to you from yourself and Brittany, but I feel like (laughs) I thought this was so poignant. So you write, as Brittany Cooper has regularly observed, it's the fact that black women have been offered neither patriarchal nor racial advantage in exchange for support that has enabled their steady and unremitting leadership of the resistance to white patriarchal power in America. And then she writes, White women and black men both want what white men have. White women want to have corporate power, and black men want to be patriarchs. Black women, A, know we're never going to get that, and B, don't want that. We don't want to wield corporate power, and we don't want to oppress people. That's why I look to black women as the political future. And they're also the past, right? So you also write... Black women have long been the backbone of our political and progressive past. The strategists and protesters and organizers and volunteers, the women who've gotten out the vote and licked the envelopes, pioneered the thinking that led to the revolutions, yet they've been only barely represented in leadership of the political parties they've bolstered. Their policy priorities have often gone unaddressed and unrecognized. Their participation has long been taken for granted. And when white women have caught up to where black women have been for a long time, The work of the black women has often been appropriated, ignored, and uncredited by those with greater economic, cultural, and racial advantage. I feel like certainly more white women in particular are starting to wake up, to understand, to educate themselves, to try to catch up as you write. But I would agree with her. I feel like our best path forward is to stand, to get behind black women and other marginalized women and let them show us how to show the way to a more equitable and less oppressive future. I think that that is part of what absolutely needs to happen. It is a very, very tricky dynamic, this period in which there are white women who are, I believe, awake in a way that they haven't been before. And that is important, but the impulse to, and you want to keep them awake because you need it, right? If white women actually vote, you know, in, in favor on the side of, of white patriarchy and conservative politics in this country, then liberal politics will not win. Right. So you need the white women, but then there's the way in which the folk, because they're the shifting entity, the focus remains on them. And that's part of this whole structural problem that I'm describing there that Brittany's talking about, right? Where white women then become the focus of the attention. Right. This is something that I struggle with in my work. I am a white woman. And and part part of Good and Mad is about this, this path that is being trod by white women. And I it is important because if they were if if white women became or a sufficient number of them became conscious of and active in a way that I do believe we have seen in the past four years, right? Not that a majority, I have no idea what's going to happen in November of 2020. And if you look to history, there is no reason to have any faith that like a majority of white women will vote for the Democrat. There are lots of polls suggesting that, you know, a percentage of them is moving in a way that could be, but either way, it's still going to be pretty close to half and half, right? Yeah. And, but that's not the meat of my question. My question is, can those who 
are in the 47%, right, who voted for Hillary Clinton and are... Can they be committed to doing the work and, in fact, learning from and taking leads from the Black women who've been doing the work for much longer than they? Mm -hmm. And in doing the work and giving time, resources, right, to supporting those who have been in this fight for a long time, can, can white women contribute to actually making the change that needs to be made. And there's an enormous amount of change that needs to be made in this country. And there are lots of people who've been working toward that change for their whole lives, for decades. And there are a lot of white women who have only recently awoken to the, to the scope of what needs to be done. And can enough of them put their resources to work without also making themselves the focus and taking over a sort of leadership position. And that's a very, very tricky balance to strike. And it's one that I, I think about all the time in my work. Yeah, certainly. And it's, it's, I hear you acutely. And we're so we're so used to it, right? Even in the context, like you write a lot about, you know, how tears, right, are the it's the feminine equivalent of showing distress, right? And it's a mm-hmm. way of creating vulnerable vulnerability not or expressing vulnerability and not ruffling feathers and it's sort of our typical go-to. And then you talk a lot about angry tears and this idea mm-hmm. of rage trans- transmuted that way. And I wonder, you know, as women in general and white women, it's like I almost feel like because we have been limited in the way that we have been taught to express our emotions, like we just get also disjointed. And it's like we have this reaction of the only way I can get attention is by bringing the attention to me through tears. I mean, white mm. tears and their their problem throughout the culture of history, et cetera. But it's an, it is a bind. Right. And that, in fact, one of the... <sighs> One of the terribly knotted and horrible dynamics in all of this is that one of the ways that white women have extracted attention and the protection that they're promised but but don't always get within white patriarchy is, you know, the manipulation of their own vulnerability and the presentation of themselves as vulnerable. And of course, this ties very strongly into a horrifying history of lynching in this country. And, and white women, I mean, the, the crying being both literal and metaphorical, but white women using false claims of sexual assault against black men, and then having those claims be used to justify violence, lynching, murder of black men throughout this country's history. And so there is like, there is like murderous history behind white women's tears. But it is also true, well, it's not a but, it is, it is simultaneously true that because tears signal vulnerability, they become an easier outlet for, for white women who have things that they are really furious about, right? Things that they may be legitimately furious about. But if they raise their voices in anger, they wouldn't be heard about. And yet if they, if, if, I mean, and this is, I say this, I write in the book about my own experience at work, crying, Mm -hmm. not intentionally, but being so angry um, about something that was, you know, unjust and infuriating in my workplace that I cried. 
instead of yelling was not a possibility. And I think that, that that's something that actually I've heard from so many people it is one of the outlets because it's one of the expressions of dissatisfaction that is acceptable in part because it telegraphs vulnerability and not threat or disruption or complaint. And so it's something we are, we respond to the systems in which we work, in which we live. And so it's, it's one of those responses that, that we've been taught this and, and white women have been taught it, especially. And that's not to say, I think, I think lots of black women also have the experience of crying when they're angry. I don't, but, but the world may respond to it differently, right? The Mm -hmm. world responds to a weeping white woman differently than to a weeping black woman. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and anger, I think people respond, I mean, I think they call us all mad, but I feel, and you talk about this in the book as well, but when a black woman is angry, she's perceived as dangerous Mm -hmm. and it then puts her in danger in a way that doesn't, I mean, we've all seen videos of white women ranting at cops on the side of the road in a way that a black woman had dare not for fear of what might happen. And not only that the ranting might imperil a black woman, but that the ranting by a white woman may imperil black people too. I mean, you saw that this summer, for example, you see it all the time. But the the example from this past summer was Amy Cooper, the woman in in Central Park, who got angry at a black man, Christian Cooper, who was birding in the park and called the police on him. That was, I mean, that is again, the deployment of white female vulnerability. And again, you know, Amy Cooper was angry, but in transforming that anger into tears and claims of vulnerability, you know, she was weaponizing, weaponizing it in a way that could have been disastrous or deadly for the black man who, who she was having this encounter with in the park. So, and and I thought that this was really interesting, not to sort of switch gears, but to go back to sort of anger. And I thought this was an interesting theory, if you don't mind if I read again. Perhaps the negativity around yelling women goes back to the disproportionate labor they perform as caretakers of the young. Women's raised voices, an unhappy reminder of reprimands, tones that make men feel like children again, under the punitive thumbs of their mothers, grandmothers, older sisters, nannies, and teachers who nurtured and educated them. We're raised by women, said Gloria Steinem, so we experience female power when we're younger. And men, especially, when they see a powerful woman as an adult, feel regressed to childhood and strike out at her. I thought that was really interesting. Do you, and you, you, I know you don't get sort of deep into the psychology of it in your book, but what do you, what is your theory? Because obviously it's as old as time, right? It goes back to Telemachus. It goes back to him telling his mom to, to shut up when she chastises him. Mm-hmm. What, what do you make of that? Well, I think that a, a couple things. First of all, I, I've always found that Steinem theory very compelling, that especially in a world in which the only vector in which women's authority was acknowledged as as a legitimate force was domestically and familially, right? And 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 then as women became school teachers within a school context, you know? Right. And so in a culture where especially white men are taught 
that their authority is the thing that they should be pursuing, right? That their their power is, the, the, you know, that their path should be toward their own power and authority. For a long time, there was this, like, the, the only women who might have plausibly had authority over them, causing them resentment or shame because the message is being sent to them is that they're the ones who should have power, were mothers or teachers, right? And you see so much pushback you know, there, there's so much writing off of, of female anger as she sounded like my mother or she sounded like my ex-wife in domestic context. And then you heard it more recently when Elizabeth Warren was running for president, it was a sort of constant, she sounds like a school marm, right? That's how mm-hmm. women are described often, school marmish. Of course, Elizabeth Warren was a teacher. And so there is something very compelling about the notion that people resent the memories of when women had power over them, power to evaluate them, power to punish them as mothers, power to grade them, to pass them or fail them, to tell them, you know, that to, to be to be smarter than them, publicly smarter than them or more knowledgeable than them. And so that's, there's some of that resentment. So I, I, I find that very compelling. I don't know enough about the psychology to say, well, that's it. I do think more broadly that within a patriarchy, and, and we are built around patriarchal norm standards, right? Real fear of insurrection, right? Within any power structure, political, social, there's, there is anxiety about, about an uprising. Of course. And so if you, like, it, within a patriarchy, who's going to rise up? Women. And so you want to, and, and what is one of the communicative modes signaling dissatisfaction with how power works is anger, right? And so the impulse to discourage women who have less power within a patriarchy from expressing their dissatisfaction with their smaller share of power makes sense. And I look at this often within the, within the context of American history, because actually the founding is you know, a bunch of people who are dissatisfied with being taxed and policed without representation are angry, right? Give me liberty or give me death. Don't, you know, this is like the American Revolution is this the tea party throwing tea in a harbor, right? It's a temper tantrum. It's a, it's a protest. Right. We're taught about it as uh, like our national lullaby, right? This is this is the tale of political fury that is our founding narrative. We revere the the men who were angry about their unequal treatment within this political system. And they were so angry and they gave that anger violent revolutionary expression. And they're revolutionaries. They birthed the nation and then they made And then they built this new nation around documents that cemented all kinds of the very inequalities that they themselves had so furiously chafed against, right? The, you know, establishing in the founding the inhumanity, right? The the lack of acknowledgement of humanity of an enslaved population in this country, the lack of a franchise or equal economic participation to women, but then if your if your nation has been birthed out of furious dissatisfaction with the inequality of your political and social circumstances and then you make your new nation and bake into it inequalities what are you going to be afraid of that the people who are on the wrong side of those inequalities are going to be mad and revolutionary and they're right to be they they were right you know people are right to be afraid of Insurre- you know, people in power are correct to be afraid 
of the angry insurrection. If you look back at almost any one of the transformative social and political movements in this country, and I'm not just talking about the movements that we think of as traditionally women's movements, right? Like the suffrage movement, the first wave of feminism, or the second wave of feminism. I'm not just talking about the Women's March, right? I'm also talking about Emma Gonzalez, you know? And I am also talking about Rosa Parks and Polly Murray. I am talking about, you know, movements that we don't traditionally think of as as feminized, in part because the women who are at at the start of them aren't always remembered or the you know or do or, or described in in the history that we're that we're taught the labor movement in this country that we're so often taught you know as being about coal miners and air traffic controllers and teamsters and all that is real i don't mean to take away from any of the men who were labor leaders and who tr- helped to transform this country but we are so very rarely taught that you know about about the young girls in the in the lowell mills in Massachusetts, who formed some of the nation's first labor unions and staged some of the first strikes. We are not taught about the the washerwomen strike, the strike of black washerwomen in Atlanta in 1881, not that long after emancipation, and a strike of washerwomen that brought the economy of that city to a halt, right? We are not taught when we, when they made a movie about Stonewall, you know, about, about mm-hmm. the Stonewall uprising. And in that movie, I write about this in the book, you're, you're offered a, a hero who is a young white man, a young white gay man, right? But you're not taught about Marsha P. Johnson or Sylvia Rivera or Stormy DeLavery, you know, who were the, the women and the female identifying people in, at, at Stonewall who were among the first <laughs> to begin that insurrection by many accounts. So, so often... It's been angry women, and not just angry on account of of gender inequality, right? Angry about injustice and inequality from almost every angle. And it's been angry women who, via their expression of anger, have helped to kickstart movements that have eventually transformed our laws and our customs and our attitude. So those in power are right to fear angry women. But we have to understand that it's that fear that, that... produces the messages that we're all given that we shouldn't be angry, right? There's actually a way in which the messages that we're sent from the time we're little, which is that if we're angry, people won't listen to us in the same way. If we express our anger, people won't like us. They'll, we'll, anger makes us ugly. Anger means that we're sick. Anger means that there's something not right about us. Uh, all these things, part of why we get those messages is because there is an incentive amongst, you know, built into the power structure in which we all live and function and from which we all derive unequal sets of benefits. There is an incentive to quell the the impulse of those who are in any way at the margins from communicating their dissatisfaction. And it's because even the communication of anger, it doesn't have to be, you know, kicking off the Stonewall riot. Sometimes so part of what we've seen just in the past few years has been, and I write about this in the book, you know, I went and, and spoke to a lot of women, you know, white middle class women in an Atlanta suburb that's very conservative, who had sort of come alive to political participation and activism in the years after Donald Trump was elected. And I talked to them about that process. And many of them described being Democrats in a conservative community 
for their whole lives, but never having wanted to disturb the peace because they got those messages, right? They got those messages that if they were angry, if they were disruptive, if they voiced their complaints, people wouldn't take them seriously. They'd be the, you know, the skunk at the garden party. And then this thing happened, which is Donald Trump won the presidency and they were so angry they couldn't control it anymore. But when they just gave voice to their anger, and some of them that meant literally telling another mother at an elementary school, I'm so upset that Donald Trump won the presidency. What happened is that they discovered that other people on their same block felt the same way as as they had, but they'd all been so encouraged to keep quiet about it, to not give voice to anything disruptive or complainy or 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 furious, let alone you know, let alone furious, that they'd all been quiet. So they didn't even know that other like-minded people existed. And this is one of the strategic functions of discouraging the expression of anger in in women and in in lots of people at the margins, because the communication of dissatisfaction is the building block for potential future organizing and activism for making networks of people. You know, this is part of how social movements work is they build by, by numbers, by force, right? You get a lot of people who are angry about the same thing. And that's how you begin to stage a campaign, go on strike, you know, organize your workplace, have a march, have a protest, you know, pressure your elected officials to to push for legislation and policy that would actually change how these systems work to the benefit of more people. All those things come from mass movements. Well, how do you get mass movements if everybody's discouraged from saying out loud, everybody's effectively discouraged from saying out loud what they're dissatisfied with? And so don't forget that the messages we get that tell us and this is especially true for white women who are re- you know rewarded in certain ways within a white patriarchy that that tell us that being smiley and going along and not you know is is the way that we'll be more highly valued don't forget that that is strategic right it's part of ensuring that that people stay at the margins and don't gain enough power by communicating fully with each other that they could disrupt Right. How the system works. So how, so clearly we don't know what will happen in November and it will be an incredible sort of moral, I think we can be certain that Trump will will not win the popular vote, right? And so we're either in this ongoing quagmire or we have a chance to sort of right this ship before Mm. we end up on the bottom of the ocean. What's your best advice in the context of sort of this continual engagement, because I don't get the sense that anyone feels compelled to take the brakes off, take their foot or put their foot on the brakes. But what do you, how do we, and I know that the question of like, is this a moment or a movement is so annoying and clearly we're beyond that, I think. But how do we just stay persistent and stay engaged? I mean, we clearly have a lot of work to do to unwind what's been done. But then how do we continue to move forward? What, how do you, what, what do you want to see? So I think the risk in front of us right now is so great, no matter the outcome of the election. And that is not to say that the outcome of the election doesn't matter. Of course it matters. Right. Monumentally, right? But when I look at the consciousness 
and the activation of previously sort of somnambulant sleepwalking populations who had been apathetic, who had been able to afford to remain asleep to the to the grave and perilous inequalities, you know, that that shape our country and have for a long time before Donald Trump was ever a glimmer, you know, in birtherism's eyes, right? I think that when I think about the continued participation, the absolute crucial necessity as this planet is on the verge of destruction, as the democracy and the judicial system hangs in a balance, and it's it's not even hanging in a balance, it has been reshaped in a way that is going to alter our laws and, and millions of people's ability to live freely and with dignity, for generations to come, right? Donald Trump and the Republicans, the party that has, you know, aided his rise and and are loyal to him, have remade our judiciary in a way that's going to shape our next 50 years, okay? So given these circumstances, it is absolutely crucial that those who have been awakened over the past four years remain awake and just as active, practically not missing a beat. And so I am very scared from both perspectives. If we look just at the presidential election, and the outcome. I am scared in both directions about this. Because on the one hand, I'm not sure about anything. So you say that we can be fairly sure that Donald Trump will win or will lose the popular vote. Sure, probably. But I, truly at this point, given the, the, you know, the number of voter suppression tactics that, that you know, have proven to be effective, I don't, I'm not sure of anything. Right. So if Trump wins, my great fear is that then there's this group of people who have been roused to activism over the past four years who give up. And I saw little tastes of that. I mean, when I was on book tour after the the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing, I felt that. And it was so terrifying because I was on that book tour in October, you know, in the four or five weeks leading up to the midterm elections. And I had so many people who'd been who'd been working their hearts out, you know, every available hour, every minute, every resource they had given to this. And they had been engaged in the fight against Kavanaugh. And and he had won anyway, because he had power on his side, right? And it's hard to be the on the side of the disruptive power at the margins. You don't have as much power. That's the thing. That's the thing that makes you angry. And it's the reality you face. And so they'd lost, right? Yeah. We lost on Kavanaugh because the white patriarchy had the power to put him through anyway. It didn't matter. It didn't matter how right we were. It didn't matter how that the majority of Americans agreed that he shouldn't have been confirmed. It didn't matter. They had the power. That's how it works. And it was so, def- and that's, that is the challenge. Remember that when we look back at this country's history, you again are looking at a history in which, you know, people who were denied their liberty and their very humanity by our founding documents had to fight against that kind of power imbalance in order to eventually win their liberation. So these things and losing many, many times are part of being in the fight. But for those who are relatively new to these kinds of fights, they'd had a pretty good run. You know, there'd been a women's march and a record number of people had come out and there had been a big move to stop the repeal of Obamacare in the spring of 2017. And an unprecedented number of people had called their senators to pressure them to vote against the Obamacare repeal. And it had worked. John McCain gave the thumbs down. It had worked. Right. People's power had worked. There was a Me Too, a hashtag Me Too movement and powerful men had lost their jobs, which had never happened before. So there was this feeling of like, wow, when we're awake to this, when we're participating, we can win. And that had been energizing. And then boom, there was this Kavanaugh wall. 
And what I heard on that book tour was like a lot of women, and again, coming from a place, if they were recently, if they were new to this battle, it was probably because they'd been in a position, as lots of us, you know, have been, to be able to have been asleep before this, right? And if they were in that position, they had some experience with advantage, with winning, right? With actually being on the powerful side. And to not win was paralyzing, confusing. And and it was terrifying to me. And the thing I, you know, it, it was like, no, 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 no. Now is not the time to feel like, oh my God, this is unwinnable. If these things were winnable, we wouldn't be in this situation, right? If these things were winnable quickly, we wouldn't be in this situation. And, and we can't be in a position where defeat makes us think that the fight is no longer worthwhile. Right. All the changes that we've seen in this country have come after defeat, 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 generations, centuries in many cases, you know? We're taught a condensed version of history where the civil rights movement was like, you know, a series of marches and, and boycotts that then resulted in the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. But it was, it was decades in the making and before that, of course, centuries. The same thing for the fight for full enfranchisement. This is unrolled, it's still going. And so if Trump wins, one of the things I'm afraid of is that all those who have altered the course of their lives, and so many women have told me about like their marriages changing and in some cases ending, their whole, their approach to their work ending because their, their political co commitments were taking precedence. That's right. That's correct. That's correct. Right. And, and so I'm scared that that would end by the same token, if Biden wins, I am scared that the fear, and this is one of the costs of, of a figure like Trump, that he is so horrifically bad that we think that if, if this one guy is defeated, then the work is done. And right. that scares me too. I am, I, believe me, I want nothing more than for Joe Biden, who was not even my chosen candidate, right? I, I, somebody I've been very critical of. He is not my ideal president. But I want Joe Biden to win this presidency more than perhaps I've ever wanted anybody to win a presidency before. And yet I am very scared, especially given the limitations of Biden and the party, the Democratic Party, and its, its own anxiety about getting behind some of the radical changes that I think we need. I am very scared that a Biden win will also re-anesthetize a population of people who think that the problem is solved if Trump is gone. Right. So when you say what needs to happen, the only thing I have to ha say is like on November 4th or December 4th or whenever we know who is going to be in the White House come January, the only thing that has to happen is everybody has to stay awake for the rest of our lives. Totally. I mean, take a nap. Great. Okay. <laughs> Quick nap. <laughs> but stay awake. That's the call. Stay angry. It is not over in either direction, no matter the outcome. It is not over. Right. And, and that is the great challenge ahead of us, as far as I'm concerned. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Rebecca Traster. For more from Rebecca, pick up a copy of her book, Good and Mad. You won't regret it. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast. <laughs>